So it's funny to look back in hindsight um, on how everything fits together, right? This happens once you're an adult. The longer <laughs> you, uh, you're you around, you can look back at things and be like, man, that's it's kind of crazy that it's working out this way. And, mm-hmm. you know, this idea that I'm I'm glad I went through all the hard, hard things I went through. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has her PhD in exercise physiology. Much like my guest last week, Akil, she works at Hydro, where she is the director of exercise research and innovation. Before that, she was a Division One rower at Princeton and followed that up coaching at Princeton for three years. She also currently works as an associate scientist in the Humans Performance Lab at Wisconsin. And if you want another podcast to listen to with a lot of great guests and good information to figure out who you are, why you do what you do, she's the host of the Humble Podcast. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kristen Harold's daughter. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Um, like I said before, we got going. Um, I spoke to Akil last week, and then you now. I should clarify again: if you didn't listen to last week's episode, it's Hydro with a W, um, not just the regular Hydro, um, because it's a company name. Uh, and I didn't know that I was going to get to talk to both of you. Often, I only get to talk to one representative, so I, I'm always grateful to have very high quality guests to to speak with. So thanks for thanks for joining me. Yeah, no, I'm uh, honored to follow Akil. He is amazing. <laughs> so uh, do you guys cross paths that much? I mean, I don't know how large Hydro is. I, Akil seems like a really cool guy. Um, I told him before we got going, and maybe even during the show, I was just like researching him. I was like, he looks like he seems like a cool guy to hang out with. But since he's also a software engineer, I'm like, he may just be stuck behind the screen most of the day. When he's not out, you know, shooting promo video or doing his workout. So, you know, I don't know how how much. Obviously, right now, probably not so much. But normally, do you guys see each other much? You know, I actually get to hang out with Akil a fair amount, which is amazing uh, because he is so fun to work with. He and I actually go back to 2004, where we had overlap at the Princeton Boathouse when he was on the national team, and I was um, I was training there as an undergrad, mm-hmm. and then we you know, didn't see each other for over a decade, I guess, and um, then met up again at Hydro um, back in 2019. And so now, like in my in my current role, um, I do a lot of uh, interacting with the athletes. So I interact with Akil um, in his role as an athlete, as an on-screen athlete who's um, doing workouts for the Hydro members. And because like a big part of what I do is I actually program a lot of what the um, whole health and fitness content is at Hydro. So he and I um, will chat about his upcoming workouts and, you know, if he is 
going to be filming things that are part of upcoming training camps. And we'll just, we always have a back and forth really close between um, me, the other folks on the fitness team and the athletes before they head out and, and film things because we, you know, we document everything. We, every single workout that they go do, we have written out, we have load scored, you know, it's all part of a bigger picture. So mm-hmm. I actually uh, am happy to report that I get to talk to Akil um, a pretty fair amount. So I, I think this begs the question a little bit. Uh, maybe it's just a, a matter of I, I've spoken to two of you, so it's a very small sample size. But is everybody at Hydro a former rower of some sort? Or <laughs> actually, uh, well, so it was Hydro was founded, of course, by Bruce Smith, who mm-hmm. is a former rower, former national team coach, uh, former CEO of CRI. So like very firmly from the rowing world. Um, and my direct boss, Matt Lehrer, is also from CRI. They work together there. He's from the rowing world. I, I don't I don't want to throw out a percentage. It's actually, there is a fair amount of people um, on staff at Hydro who have some rowing experience, but there aren't that many of us, I think, who really uh, committed over half our lives to it professionally, which is the case for me, which is definitely a case for Akil. Um, you just happen to have talked to two of us. <laughs> no, that's fair. It's it's one of those things I just, you know, I'm curious about. I, I think some ways it's maybe a little self-selective, right? Like when I, I spoke with um, Jesse Frank from Specialized, he works in the wind tunnel lab and he, you know, he runs and most of the people in the office there bike because it's specialized and they make bikes. And so if he goes like, somewhere with his running shorts on everybody looks like him like adam like he's a maniac because they're like like who's this runner in our office like we only ride bikes here so i think it's a little bit of like i mean a, a bike company is gonna attract people that are cyclists and you know like a rowing company is probably going to attract people with a rowing background so i think it's a little bit um like i said self-selecting or self-fulfilling prophecy depending on how you want to define that um but it's just a curiosity since, like I said, my sample size is only two. Um, well, it seemed like that, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I think Akil is at the company for obvious reasons because he is just an incredible rower and brings such incredible experience and his just wonderful personality to the screen. Uh, me, I was, I have this really interesting mix of skills and background that, um, were weirdly perfect for when I was brought into hydro in 2019 to the the fact that I come from the rowing world, both as an athlete and as a coach, but I also research rowing. You know, one Mm -hmm. of the things that I did in uh, while I was in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin is I um, helped with actually, you know, administering the pre and post season fitness testing on all the D1 athletes or most of the D1 athletes. And that included VO2 max tests, heart rate variability, heart rate recovery, all sorts of, uh, you know, measurements of not only their fitness, but, you know, their recovery and kind of their sleep and and all sorts of things. And one of the groups that we um, tested was the women's rowing team, which is very large at Wisconsin. And, um, so I had all this experience writing papers and analyzing and, and administering tests on athletes, but also rowers, which is kind of a niche thing um, because there just aren't that many and there isn't much funding for rowing. So 
um, Hydro was looking for somebody who kind of knew the ins and outs of the physiology of rowing, uh, what is caloric expenditure actually like um, during rowing, how to make really impactful rowing workouts for everyday people, you know, like one of, <laughs> so, I mean, not to get too long-winded, I'm sure we can, uh, I can address these, these things later, but um, it's not, like I came in and, and I am a rower, but it's, it's so much more than that. I actually had, I have, my life has, has, has gone in such a way that I uh, have stayed in touch with rowing, but on the research side more recently, which is um, also a bit unusual. This is kind of a, a sub note and a very probably small footnote in what you had mentioned, but um, you got me thinking about, I did a video recently about um, how, how far do you have to run to burn a thousand calories? Cause it's, you know, people get fixated on those nice, easy numbers and, and the math of it kind of works out where obviously it depends a little bit on how much you weigh, whether you're going uphill, like those kind of things. But as a general rule of thumb, it's you're going to burn about 100 calories a mile, like regardless of speed. Is there any nice rule like that in rowing or is there more variability to, you know, how that works? It's I mean, it, this is caloric expenditure is one of my favorite and most frustrating questions because, <laughs> okay. you know, it's one of these most annoying answers you can probably get is it depends. Right. And you right. might right at the beginning of your question yeah uh because there's so much so the beauty of rowing is that what well one of the one of the most attractive parts of rowing to i think people especially right now when at home fitness is is <laughs> kind of uh what a lot of us are being drawn to is you know you want to be able to get as much for any given amount of time right and it's a whole body workout it, it just is that is the nature of rowing it is basically like the a clean motion right your whole body is involved what the flip side of that is that all of the pieces it takes a little bit of time and you know uh practice to get that you know all of the body movements to go together in the right way right so it your question is you know for i could answer your question probably for you know Akil's level that is like that, you know, he has um, his muscle member memory is just, you know, perfect, right? He will never forget how to row. And so I could tell you for somebody who's like that, um, somebody who has taken the time to really master the motion. Yes, you know, you can you could probably uh, figure out pretty closely what um, caloric expenditure is exactly for him. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum, somebody who's never sat down on a rowing machine and needs to take the time. So it's really, it's this spectrum, right? But what I can tell you is once you figure it out, it is just so, so impactful. I've never, honestly, the thing you said, it's almost embarrassing that, uh, and I maybe shouldn't admit to this. I had never heard, you know, the idea that there's a a um, hundred-ish calories per mile. I like that. I'm going to think about that. And Yeah, it, it varies, but like, regardless of variables, it's like, maybe it goes up 10 or like, it's not huge jumps. And that's, it's the thing we think about where it's like, you think you want to think, well, if I'm running six minute miles and you're running 10 minute miles, like I'm clearly burning more calories than you. No, 
I, I just happen to be doing them faster. <laughs> right. You know, I'm just, I'm burning more energy to move that distance fast. Like I have the ability to do that, but it doesn't change that the, the amount of work being done, because we just go back to our physics lessons, it's the same to cover that mile, roughly speaking. Um, now, like I'm, I'm around 170 pounds. If you take somebody, you know, twice my size and they have to move a mile, clearly they're doing more work than I am because it takes more work. It takes more energy to move a larger body. But that general rule of thumb still basically applies. It, it I hadn't, until I did the research for the video, I was like, you're still in that mindset. I was like, clearly going faster, you're going to be burning more. No, it, it just, you just go through the math of it and you're like, oh, okay. Like that's, that's a good rule of thumb. And it's, it's been useful for me. Um, Cause I've had to like try to cut, cut a little bit of weight lately as I'm just coming back to running versus triathlon. So you can't be quite as, as heavy. And uh, so when I'm trying to figure out my calories for the week, it's like, well, how many miles am I running? 40 miles. Okay. There's 4,000 calories. Divide that over seven days, blah, blah, blah. Like it's a really nice rule of thumb. And then obviously for me, you pay attention to your stomach too. If you're too hungry, just eat something. But yeah. 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 It's when you think, when you relate running to rowing, it's also just so important. You know, you mentioned it, right? If you've got somebody who's carrying around extra weight, but they have the same amount of lean mass, it's going to affect, um, you know, their energy output is going to, not give them the same benefit in miles per hour, right? But in rowing, uh, it's not load bearing, right? You're right. not uh, carrying yourself around. So the lean mass matters more. The lean mass will di dictate your ability to go um, a, a given wattage mm -hmm. more than your actual whole weight, right? So it's actually, you know, um, there's a lot to say there, but there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, doing something load bearing like that. If you are heavier, if you're carrying around a little bit extra weight, uh, might be a good idea. Yeah, that kind of makes me think about, as I think about it, it's like closer to cycling where there's kind of a advanced simulation calculators online you can put in and say, okay, I can push this many watts and I'm this weight and this is, you know, the frontal area of my body and the wind resistance. You can put all those variables in. And like when you adjust weight and you say, you know, say I could do 250 watts, which is reasonable for me and my current fitness, and I dropped 10 pounds. It's like, you don't gain that much speed. You gain a little, but like 10 pounds would be a lot of speed in running, assuming that it's healthy weight. Um, that's something I try to talk to about too, because there's such a culture of being too thin in running. But in cycling, because, you know, you're on the bike and you're largely you know, limited by like, um, what do I want to say? Not rotational inertia, but like rotation, like the resistance of the wheels against the ground and that kind of stuff. Like those are larger limiters. And then your, you know, frontal area is a larger limiter than your weight is that if you're like bigger, but you can get small, like that is going to be more beneficial than just like losing 10 pounds. So yeah, it's all it about lean more mass. Yeah. yeah, lean mass and where it is and, and what your sport actually demands. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I want to know a little bit more um, about you, your your kind of story. I know 
at least I believe I know uh, from the podcast, you focused on you know athlete identity, and I think you went through what I'll call like the athlete identity crisis post post retirement. I talked about this with a number of athletes on the show over time, but it seems like you are, are kind of specialist in it in some ways because of the show. Um, so can you give me a little more idea about kind of your journey, how, you know, what, what led you from rowing to coaching and then, and then onto the show? Yeah. So it's funny to look back in hindsight, um, on how everything fits together, right? This happens once you're an adult, the longer <laughs> you, uh, you're around, you can look back at things and be like, man, that's, it's kind of crazy that it's working out this way. And, mm-hmm. you know, this idea that I'm, I'm glad I went through all the hard, hard things I went through, um, definitely applies to me. Um, I've been incredibly privileged, um, uh, my whole life, but especially, you know, the last almost two decades, which is crazy to say, that's when I discovered rowing, um, just about, uh, it really did change my life up until, uh, when I was, you know, I was uh, a pretty typical athletic kid, played soccer, um, was terrible at basketball, was very bad at a lot of things. But, you know, I, I one thing I had going for me was that I wouldn't stop trying and really cared about doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, rowing is a sport that rewards you for just putting your head down and, and grinding. And so when I discovered it when I was 16, uh, it just, it, I, I was able to just like, you know, put blinders on and the harder I worked, the more I was rewarded. And that ended up, um, you know, I got an opportunity to uh, go to Princeton and row there, which uh, was incredible. And, you know, again, I look back and and that that completely changed the trajectory of my life, as everything does. But, you know, really for me, um, I, I can't help but realize that that was a huge, huge thing for me. My four years at Princeton rowing um, in 2006, we won the NCAA championships and we were, you know, dubbed one of the greatest eights in history. And I rowed with, I want to say five, if not four um, Olympic medalists in that boat uh, who would go on to win Olympic medals, although Andy Moran had already won a silver medal, I believe. Um, and I was this sophomore uh, sitting up in seven seat, which is right behind the 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 stroke seat, the leader kind of of the boat, and then the coxswain in front of her. Her name was Caroline Lind, and she is a two-time gold medalist um, at the Olympics. And just, you know, I learned... I, I thought I knew about work ethic going in, and in that year, I learned more than I ever could in any other year. I imagine is is I was surrounded by this group of women who just, you know, we identified a goal, and we identified what it t- would take to get there, and we measured our s- success off of ourselves because we were pretty sure that we were faster than anybody else um, if we worked together. And it's it's so funny. Um, the life lessons you learn in sport um, can go either way, right? So for all the positives I learned in that year and all four years, you know, coming off of uh, a win like that, when um, half of that boat graduates and you you go back and it's a rebuilding year, you know, all the life lessons you learn along the way and all the mistakes you make on a personal level um, in dealing with that, I've taken with me 
um, you know, it took probably, so I graduated in 2008 and I had really focused those four years on, I loved rowing. I loved, uh, I loved performing. I loved training. I've always loved the process more than the outcome. And I mean, not that the outcome doesn't matter to me, but the process mm -hmm. is really something that um, I hold on to for dear life. And it, it, coming out of graduating from Princeton, I didn't know who I was without it. And I knew that, so I was an Icelandic citizen. Um, I did not have American citizenship. So, uh, you know, trying out for the national team wasn't an option for me. It'll shock no one that Iceland doesn't have a rowing national team. So um, I didn't go that route either. So I just, I didn't know, you know, and it was 2008, uh, which was a bad financial year, right? So mm -hmm. I did what I knew. Um, I became a personal trainer in New York City um, at Equinox and <laughs> the, the, you know, living in New York City, making entry level personal training dollars is not glamorous, right? Right. And so for that year, you know, I would I would show up at 5 a.m. and do the, you know, the early shift where you're walking around in a blue shirt and people ask you questions and you clean things. And I would end my day at 11 p.m. doing the same thing and, and hope to train some people during the day. But um, and then that led to uh, I, I very gratefully accepted an offer to come interview for the assistant coaching position back with Lori Dauphiny, um at Princeton for the women's rowing program. And I ended up coaching there for three years. And, and a lot of the, I'm going to say the mistakes, but the oversights I had during my undergrad, I was so laser focused on my own performance. I never saw the bigger picture of anything really. And so I really committed in those three years back coaching to look at the team as a whole and understand how to, what could I do to really contribute to this team from the bottom up? Because I was the, you know, I was the second assistant. I was, you know, the bottom, the, the, the least, um, uh, you know, I was the lowest coach, if you will. Um, and so I was, you know, working with the novices. I was working with freshmen. I was in the spring, you know, the um, I wasn't up with the varsity eights, which was an absolute pleasure for me because it was new. And I was looking at the team as a whole. I was understanding, you know, what's happening, um, you know, in the back of the erg room rather than at the front and um, just watching trends and watching, you know, like what what makes the athletes happy because happy athletes tend to perform pretty well mm -hmm. and um what you know that watching the trends of injuries and what happens and and how you know just like looking at the team as a whole and i started to realize in my third year that i knew so little i knew i knew so little about uh what works and what doesn't or when when something works why or when someone's really fast and doesn't get injured why you know, we want more of that, less of the, um, you know, anxiety and, and less of the injuries. And so I thought, I, I have to go, I, I have to go figure this out somewhere. Like I have to learn more about this. I, 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 you know, I have the most respect for my, you know, my bosses and my, my former coaches, but I needed to go figure it out for myself, try a new approach. So, um, I looked for grad programs that would, um, you know, teach me something about physiology, about, um, you know, 
what works and what doesn't in sport, what's healthy, what has a long-term healthy impact? Because I knew that the way I didn't wasn't right. I knew that you shouldn't graduate from one of the best academic institutions in the world after winning NCAAs and feel like you, you're not able to do anything. So I knew, I knew that, right? So I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin. I accepted a position as the grad assistant there for their women's rowing program and did a, um, signed up for a two-year non-thesis master's and quickly realized that uh, I really, really liked learning this stuff and that the non-thesis master's wasn't going to cut it for me. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> two years and a grad assistantship turned into six years, a master's and a PhD and no grad assistantship. I shifted completely academic and was so lucky I met um, Dr. Drew Watson, who's one of the head um, sports medicine physicians for the Badger Athletics Program, so Wisconsin's D1 um, athletics. And I got to start, he was just starting the pre and post season fitness testing that year, I think it was 2013. And I just, you know, I, I had that work ethic. I knew, I, I loved the process, I loved the grind. And I said, I will show up to whatever you need me to. And so I did, I showed up for, you know, 10 to 20 hours a week doing um, VO2 max tests on top of um, the things I was doing uh, in other places to get paid. And I got to start um, collecting data, analyzing data, and then writing about it, and then getting to publish it. And then actually like starting to, it was just the most thrilling thing I've ever done was to be able to actually, uh, it's the same thing as rowing. It's the same idea that you know, you have as an athlete, the thing we love as athletes is the process that ends in something, even if it's, you know, thousands of hours away, even if it's years away, just this idea that you can put your head down. And if you do the work, there is a reward and you just have to trust that your hard work will, will get you there. And so, um, after I, uh, graduated, um, you could hear this. I, I do talk about this on the podcast, but um, I'll keep it very brief. I got a, a pretty um, uh, impressive, in quotes, postdoc at Yale in nuclear cardiology. And I, uh, I went out there, packed up my life, and I realized immediately I had gotten myself into a situation again that was bad. Um, and was, it was, you know, a step backwards. It was just, uh, it was chasing something impressive that wasn't good for me. And so after 14 weeks, I walked in and I quit, which is not, uh, usually advisable if you're looking <laughs> for, you know, it was a three to five year commitment that I ended 14 weeks in. Um, not the best thing for career advancement. No, no, not really. But for life <laughs> advancement, yes, it was yeah. for me in that, in that case. So anyway, a year after that, I ended up at Hydro and it's just been, you know, yet again, getting to translate um, my life experience and the and the and all of that hard work into bringing rowing to not elite athletes in this case. Now it's to the rest of the world and like getting, you know, all these things that sport have taught me, that exercise has given me, figuring out, you know, Hydro is truly trying to figure out how to give that to everyone else. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, I feel 
ridiculously lucky to get to sit where I am right now and tell you that story. So much like Akil, it maybe it's just on my mind because I'm reading it, but so next week I'm talking to a gentleman by the name of Fergus Connolly, and he wrote this book that I'm reading, I'm going to talk to him about called the happiness handbook for high achievers. And so you made me think about that because you're talking about, as I mentioned, not a great career move, but maybe a good life move and where you were um, as an undergrad, just being like laser focused blinders, horse blinders are on. You can't see anything besides what's right, you know, and there's this focus, but then I find myself this way. Um, I think, Akil touched on it. You touched on it. I, I don't know how many guests talk about it, but it's like it seems like as we get older, and I, and I don't know. I don't know that it's a matter of if you're old, then you see it, or just you've been through enough motions and you kind of reach a place where you're like, this isn't what I want. But it's it seems like a lot of people go through this kind of laser focused, work hard, keep your you know keep your nose to the grindstone attitude, and then eventually reach i won't call it a breaking point but some kind of point of inflection where they're like am i happy what now like whatever that is is something switches so i i guess i'd like to ask you do you think if you could talk to your undergrad self could you convince her to do anything different is it important (laughs) to convince her to do anything different you know like is it is it, it are we now like sitting here loftily on a pedestal like we know all of the things but really it's a matter of she has to go through that to get where you are like is there any other way so your question is one that um i have debate debated both in my own mind and with others <laughs> i can't even tell you how many times because I am now committing much of my time to figuring out how to make it how to make it better for former me mm-hmm. because I'm pretty confident Jesse that if I t- teleported myself back to 2006 2007 and said hey chill out <laughs> or <laughs> hey like you know try to focus on your econ homework a little bit more I'd be like I'm busy uh, I'm taking this very seriously, you know, like I'm, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I honestly don't know. And I think that there's, um, there are things that I, I do wish that, um, I actually do think that there are some things that would have helped me. Um, and there are things like, uh, it, I, I don't know if this sounds hokey to you, but it's, you know, mindfulness training. It's, uh, actually just, learning to stop and breathe, uh, all these things that could actually chill me out without like talking to me about it, but, you know, teaching me mechanisms to increase my parasympathetic tone rather than just being sympathetic all the time. Um, I am one of the lucky ones who, uh, you know, uh, you know, I was depressed in college and I uh, am able to look back now and see that I was able to, you know, I, I, I've i been able to find ways to build on where I was. But back to your question, 
I think for people like me, I think I'm, I don't think I'm unusual. Um, I think for people like me, there are ways to uh, offer mm, support that isn't like I wouldn't have accepted support, mm -hmm. but ways to, um, you know, at the end of practice, you know, like now, you know, it's 2021. This isn't, you know, in 2008, there wasn't a call map, right? There wasn't a uh, mindfulness pod podcast all over the place. That kind of stuff, I think, should be promoted in um, in athletic programs because, you know, we are actively uh, publishing research that shows that not only does mindfulness training or um, more sleep, better sleep, um, more rest and recovery, not only does it improve athlete quality of life and, you know, all sorts of metrics about uh, well-being, but it also improves performance. So if you had told me that, if you had tricked me and told me that, you know, listen to this five-minute mindfulness every night before you go to sleep or first thing in the morning, it's going to make you five seconds faster, I would have been like, oh, that seems like a good idea. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's, and I bet you I would have felt a lot. I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it would have changed anything, but right. I can't help but think it might have. Well, it's, I mean, it's the uh, indeterminable question, right? You can't answer it because it, it, it happened the way it happened and you can't change it. But it's just it's one of those things where I think it kind of helps, like, give clarity to where you are now, Um rightly or wrongly so it, it so it's more of a probing question but you know you mentioned um like being depressed as an undergraduate and a lot of people would on the outside looking in go well i mean you're a division one row at princeton like so many people would love to go to princeton and don't get the opportunity and and how could you possibly be depressed and and that's one of the things that like you know i i hope you'll have the chance to listen to my conversation with them but i come coming back to the the book that Fergus wrote, uh, Happiness Handbook for High Achievers. I mean, that's he basically starts the book off saying that. You think you think on the outside looking at these people, Olympians, you know, and you've spoken to a number of them, um, it, that they're these super joyful, happy beings that everything's going right for them. When really a lot of them are struggling with identity, like you know, you went, you know, you've talked to so many of them about um, struggling with self worth, with finding joy. You know, in there are a lot of things that drive people to be the best. You know, I think one of the things that drove me and early on in, in this show, I had a theory about about it but one of the things that drove me was like a, a sense of inadequacy where it's like i need to be better and i will work as hard as i need to be to to be worth it you know where it's like yeah. you just your self your internal self-worth is just not high enough and you're like if i can just achieve enough i'll be worth something yeah and everybody you know different people have different demons so i, I don't know that that's the thing that drives every single person but i almost find like it's fewer and far between that it's a sense of pure joy is the main driver for people. I, I love it when I do find those people because I have spoken to them. But 
I think it's harder to find somebody that that's purely I'm going to work as hard as I can just because this is the thing that gives me the most joy. I think all these other factors come in, like having that identity of like I'm a rower. This is who I am. I I'm a rower at Princeton. It, you know what else could I be? And that's where your self worth comes from. And then when it's stripped away from you, don't know what to do. I think that's a very common experience. Yeah, it's funny uh, that you talk about joy and fun. Um, and this is going to make me sound, I think, maybe a little robotic, but somebody was talking to me the other day about what makes a workout fun. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, like getting a really good workout, that's fun. And like getting really sweaty and like feeling exhausted afterwards. And they were like, no, no, that's, I don't think that's fun. Like, I think you're misunderstanding. They were like, they were like oh, you're misunderstanding me. Like, that's, I, I'm talking about like, you know, the stories you want to hear and like, and it was, it was so funny because I think that um, after some self-reflection and I, I have this feeling, it seems like maybe you're similar to this, um, or at least a lot of people are, is that, you know, for process-driven people, people who get a lot of satisfaction from hard work, mm-hmm. um, it, the line between fun and fulfillment is very weird it's Mm -hmm. like i i can i can't tell you really what i think is fun because other other emotions make me feel like i'm having fun that aren't directly tied to i think what you would think fun is yeah well it's like uh, i i'm gonna i'm sure i'm gonna misquote this but it's something about there's like type one fun there's type two fun there's like the the type one is like I'm having fun right now. Like we're at a party and we're laughing and enjoying ourselves. And then the type two fun is where you're not having fun right now. But when you look back on it later, then you're like, that was fun. Yeah. I think that's the thing that like high performing athletes and like very self-driven people have and value is that, that idea. Cause I know, I mean, I spent, gosh, I spent eight years trying to become a pro triathlete and I'm coming back to just running now. And I don't know how many races I I would get to the end and I'm suffering through the run, regardless of the distance of the race. And I'd be like, why am I doing this? Like, I mean, that's the thoughts going on in my head. But I look back at some of those races in in one in particular in uh, Santa Cruz where I didn't eat enough. And like, I was going to, I think I was going to collapse if I'd gone too too much farther like i was my vision was literally turning black and yeah. kind of closing in on me and i look back and i'm like well that was fun like even immediately <laughs> like soon after i was like i didn't know i could go that far you know like i, I got a sense of satisfaction from i had like 60 year old guys passing me on the run because i was so out of it but i made it to the finish line and it's like in reality, that was probably a pretty dangerous place to be physically, yeah. but because of that, that, that type two fun, and then that desire to push yourself farther, I'm like, that was great. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a bizarre, a bizarre line, like you said, between fun and fulfillment, and then that self worth through achievement. And it was, yeah, it, it, I think that that's plays a big role in it there are some people that are just like i want to party and have fun right now and then maybe people like us are like i want to suffer right now and then when i look back on it 
I'll be fulfilled and be happy at that moment. Yeah. And I think when that get the ability to do that gets taken away. So if you're not able to participate in your sport, you're not able to train for whatever reason, whether it's um, an injury, whether it's COVID, whether it's retirement, whatever it is, when that gets taken away and that is your your definition of fun is taken away, like the thing that gives you fulfillment and and joy. It's complicated. Yeah. 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 Kristen, as we're running down on time, um, there's a question I'm asking everybody this year. I have a, a, a question I ask all my guests for a particular season. So this is my season three question. Um, I'd like to ask you, how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Huh. Uh, I find a new one. Yeah. Uh, I don't spend just about any time focusing on failures. Um, I have failed at so many things so many times that I'm not going to say it doesn't bother me, but it doesn't phase me anymore. It's part of the process. I'm pretty proud of my failures at this point. Um, and so I immediately look at what went wrong and then I find the next thing. It's a good deal. Um, Christian, where can people find you? Can they, they check you out at Hydro? Do you have social media, any of that stuff going on? Obviously, I the do. podcast, if we check out all that backlog. Yes, you can absolutely. Um, the Humbled podcast is uh, hopefully going to make a return at some point. Um, not in the near, near future, but in the future. You can find me at, uh, on Instagram. I'm really the worst at social media, but you can find me there if you can spell K and then my last name, Harold's daughter. You can find me there. We'll look for the look for the episode title to spell that, and you'll be fine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kristen. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks, Jesse.